So in my household, sometime between 5 a.m. and 6.30 a.m., on these cold mornings, I'll be snuggled all up in my blankets, quilts, and everything over me, and there'll be a little pitter-patter. And at some point, and I don't know why it's my side of the bed, but he has chose my side of the bed to always come at that time. I'll feel a tap on the shoulder. And I'll open one eye and I'll look up at the clock and it'll be like 5.15 in the morning. And it's my son Caleb and he'll say, Is it morning yet? (laughs) For the love of God, it's not morning yet. (laughs) Go back to bed. Um, What if though, what if one night you were sleeping and you felt a tap on the shoulder, you open an eye and it's like, I don't know. Three in the morning. You think, what in the world? And you look up. What if, just imagine, Jesus were there. He'd be like, shh. I, I have something to tell you. Like, there's something that I've been waiting to ask you. I, I, I have something that I want you to do for me. I want you to head up my latest project. I want you to go someplace where, where no one knows me. And I want you to launch a movement that's going to influence the entire region. A, a movement that's going to topple economic systems, reshape the culture, redefine public morality, and bring hundreds and thousands of people into my kingdom. And then before he goes, he says, and one more thing. You got five weeks. Like five weeks. Like he says, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of times I give people an entire lifetime to serve me and they just procrastinate and procrastinate. I figured five weeks, that that gives you a timeline that'll motivate you. And then he's gone. What, What would you do? I mean, where would you start? I, I, I just imagine, you know, it's five minutes after that and you're sitting there huddled over a cup of coffee thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Do I pretend like it just didn't happen? Do I wake up my wife and say, we need to do something? She'll think I'm crazy. Do you quit your job? Do you sell your house? Do you, do you run away from it? If Jesus told you to do a seemingly impossible, impossible task, to, to change an entire region in five weeks... I don't know what you do, but I imagine, if you're anything like me, that, well, the next five weeks wouldn't look like business as usual. I imagine that the next five weeks you might pray a little differently, maybe desperately. I imagine that when you read the Bible, the words might mean something a little bit different to you. I imagine that when you thought about the other Christians you're spending time with, it wasn't if they're cool and if they make you feel good, but if they're joining you in that mission, I imagine you might think about how you spent your money and your time a little differently. I imagine, I don't know, but you wouldn't spend a lot of time watching TV. If, if I were convinced... That Jesus wants me to give myself entirely to his mission. If I knew that the time is short. If I was sure that the eternity of men and women were at stake. If I knew that God wanted to call me to a mission that was worth accomplishing no matter what it costs. 
Well, what would you be willing to do? What price would you be willing to pay? What would you be willing to suffer? May I suggest to you that if we ask these questions, if we think about this type of urgency, this type of radical mission, we might start to get a sense of what the Apostle Paul lived like for years of his life. We might get a sense of what the Apostle Paul actually saw God accomplish in just five weeks in the year 49 A.D. Jesus may never have actually tapped the Apostle Paul on the shoulder and told him to launch a movement that changed the world in five weeks. But this is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. In five weeks, the Apostle Paul would launch a movement that would send ripples throughout the entire region. It would become a model church. It would be a church that thrived in persecution. It would be a church that was famous for its acts of love. It would be a church that was an example to the whole world of what an authentic movement of God was like. What radical obedience to our King is like. Of what radical sense of urgency is like. For the next six weeks, we are going to do a case study. This isn't just a Bible study. This isn't just a book study. We're going to do a case study of this church at Thessalonica. We're going to explore what can we learn from them? What is it that the Apostle Paul and his team did there that launched this movement? What is it that God did there that that could possibly happen here? Why is it? They had such an impact on their community. So over uh, holidays, I finally got to get away. Thank you so much for letting me take a break. This was, I, I promise you, and no overstatement here, it was the most restful period I've had in at least seven years. I got to go to Florida. And you know what my routine was? Every morning I would get up late because the grandparents were there to take care of the kids. And I would sit in the lawn, the backyard, there's a canal right there. And I would drink copious amounts of coffee and read a book while basking in the sun under a coconut tree. <laughs> that was my hardship. Jenny, on the other hand, she's obsessive about fishing. She was like, 6 a.m., it's time to go fishing. I'm like, no, don't move. There's too much work. But in that time, I... Um, Picked up a couple books, uh, a couple biographies, one on Jonathan Edwards, one on a guy named George Whitfield. These were two great leaders in what's called the First Great Awakening. This period in the 1700s, 1730s, 1740s, in which God moved in this massive, radical, international way. This time period in which thousands and thousands of people put their, their faith in Christ. This time period in which worship started spontaneously breaking out in communities in which people, unorganized, unplanned, just would gather together around the scriptures to read it, in which new missions groups started, in which new life was given to the church, not only in New England, but also in England, in Scotland, in Ireland. And uh, part of the story, it's, I, 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 
I love this stuff. This is the stuff that I, it gets my heart pumping. It gets my, my, my brain churning. It gets me thinking about what God could do in our time. And it's amazing the parallels of what happened then, the 1730s and 40s in, in New England, and what happened in Thessalonica, that there is surprising amounts of overlap despite the 1700 years difference. That in both, you see this radical obsession that, that we are, we have a, a radical obedience to our king. That is what he demands. That's what his gospel demands. That to follow Christ is to give him everything. And that changed the community. It changed the worship. It changed why people met. And that there is a radical sense of urgency that any moment he might come back. Any moment he might come to permanently make manifest his kingdom that he's already started. And there will be a judgment day. And those two things just shook the world. One, one phrase in this magisterial, is the word that's used to describe it, biography on Jonathan Edwards, that just sent chills up my spine though. Jonathan Edwards is reflecting on what happened. Why did that end? If God was working, if the fire of the Spirit, to use their language, was burning so brightly, what, what caused it, what snuffed it out? What quenched that fire? And as he reflects, he says, it, it wasn't sin. It wasn't like people were sinning all over the place. It wasn't like heresy. And as he reflects, he says this. What stopped the fire of the Spirit was a return to business as usual. The life just got busy. People had lots to do. I don't have time for spontaneous acts of worship. I don't have time to read the Scriptures. I don't have time for God's mission to save the souls Church, my hope and my prayer is that as we gaze into this case study of what happened at Thessalonica, that as we seek to make sense of all of this, that as we are affronted by the Apostle Paul's attitude that is all-consuming, like the time is now— at all costs, we must make forward progress. As we look at the Apostle Paul and spend time with him, as we struggle to wrap our minds around what was accomplished in a mere five weeks, my prayer is that it might grow in us a discomfort, a longing, and a hunger, and a hatred of living life with business as usual. That we might become so bold that we would ask Jesus, would you tap me on the shoulder? Would you ask me to go on that mission? Would you send me? Would you put me in that place and give me the opportunity? Lord, here I am. Send me. That we may be a church that is convinced that Jesus wants us to give ourselves entirely to his mission, that the time is short, that eternity is at stake, and that this mission is worth accomplishing even if it costs everything. But enough of that. Let's talk about history. It's a lot easier to talk about.
Today we're going to cover five major chapters in the book of Acts, Acts chapters 13 through 17. In that, we're going to cover five big years of church history, about from about uh, 46 to about 51 AD. And in that, we're going to take it all to set this setting about these five weeks in Thessalonica that are going to change the world. So five chapters over five years through. So here's the picture. We're going we're to zoom in here. We're going to start in 46 AD in the book of Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, feel free to, to pull that out and follow along of the key text up here. But it's nice to see the spread of this, the scope of this. We're starting in, in 46 AD. Okay, so to set the stage here, just, just 16 years prior to this, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. You know what that means? That means there's still eyewitnesses roaming around. There are still people who were there at Pentecost who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Like this is early, early on. And so just 16 years after this, the church leaders up at a place called Antioch. That's in uh, just north of Judea and Samaria. So this is uh, modern day Syria. The church leaders in Antioch, they're sitting there and they're having a prayer meeting. And they are praying, and they are fasting, and they are worshiping, and, and, and they're all gathered there. And then we read this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, that's the Apostle Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, up to this point in, in history, this is only 16 years after, after the death and resurrection of Christ. Up to this point in, Christ, in, in history, Christianity is very small. Like the, all the Christians in the entire world could probably fit into that stadium out there. Like that's what we're talking about, the scope of Christianity at this point. And yet, and yet this, this is the point in history where Christianity is very much still a persecuted minority. So at this point, the number one goal of most churches is survival. And I'm not talking about can we pay our, our, our bills to the year. I'm talking about literal survival. Like, is it possible our, our vision for 2014, don't get killed. That's inspiring. So in the midst of this difficult time when everyone's concerned, am I going to die this year? God sets a whole different agenda. He says, I want you to take your two main ministry leaders. I want you to take them and I want you to send them out to reach the world that wants to kill you. To, to understand the importance of this, you need to understand that up to this point, nothing like this had ever happened. Ever. The church at Antioch is the first church to send someone out on global missions. This is something entirely new, something the world has not seen. And these aren't just people they're sending out. These are their two key leaders. Like this would be like the elder saying, you know, church, we had a prayer meeting and we decided we're going to take Lucas and Paul and we're going to send them out for a few years. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Like this is a big deal. This is huge. But how do they respond? Verse 3 just says, so after they had prayed and fasted, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Like they don't even look back. If God said to do this, they're going to do it. And this moment is going to be the moment that is going to define the Apostle Paul for the rest of his life. So from this moment forward, the Apostle Paul will never look back. He is going to do what God has called him to do. He is literally on a mission from God to reach those far away. To reach those who are outside the Jewish tradition. To reach the Greeks, the Gentiles for Christ. He's going to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world no matter what the cost, no matter what he has to suffer, 
No matter how many times he gets beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and flogged and imprisoned. He has a singular focus. From this point on in his life, his focus is singular. This is the one thing that he must do. And this is the start of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Just leave this map up here to give you Antioch is over here. And this is the first missionary journey. And we're going to see in, in from about 46 to 48 AD, during this time, Paul and Barnabas, these two guys, they're sent out from Antioch and they go up, they go across the waters and then they go up into this region called, uh, uh, really it's Phrygia and up into Galatia. Okay, so they push up there. They, they, they share the gospel where it's never been shared before. They, they tell Greeks. They plant new churches in their wake. And a lot of people come to place their faith in Christ. If you want to read the story more completely, read Acts 13 and 14. We see this story in that for nearly two years, they're away. And then finally they come back, though. They come back to Antioch. And this is what they report. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you hear this? He says, you know the thing that we prayed about two years ago when we all came together and we prayed and we fasted and we said, God, whatever you want to do, do it in us. It's happening. God's opened the door to people who've never, we never thought could be saved. That the kingdom of God is spreading like never before. That Jews and Greeks, the rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, politicians and prostitutes are all streaming into the kingdom of God. This was awesome and unprecedented. And then for about a year, he and Barnabas hang out in Antioch. I think he goes down to Jerusalem at some point. More on that if you read through Acts chapter 15. But during this time, you can tell he feels the burden that he's not to be there. That God has called him out. He's got to go out. And we read, that we're going to see that just in 49 AD, just three years after that initial prayer meeting, Paul is going to take a guy named Silas, and they're going to go on what's called the second, his second missionary journey. This is the journey that's going to take him to Thessalonica and lead into those five weeks that we want to study. Now this journey starts as planned, and they go visit the cities that they had originally, originally planted in the first missionary journey. But then after that, you notice they get to Antioch, and then after that Antioch, the second Antioch, not the first one. After that, they say, okay, now where's God leading us now? I'm not content with just visiting the Christians, uh, the churches we've already planted. We have to be called to take the gospel to other places. So you know what they do? They, they say, well, first thing is we need to build a team. And along the way, they're going to gather some guys. The first guy is a guy named Luke. You may have heard of him. He wrote one of the Gospels, the Gospel according to Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, you're going to find along the book of Acts, if you read along, that the, the pronouns actually change. It goes from they did such and such to we did such and such. That at this point in the trip, somewhere in here, Luke joins the team. That he's going to give us an eyewitness account of what happened in Thessalonica and in that second half of the second missionary journey. Now, why is this significant? This is first-hand eyewitness accounts. I say this because our a lot of people question the authenticity and the reliability of the scriptures. And just by way of encouragement, let me say that Luke's historicity is perfect. 
In the 1800s, there was a real question. This was really strongly questioned. Uh, a lot of scholars, early 1800s, said, you know, Luke, he just, if you read through the book of Acts, he obviously is just making some of that stuff up. I mean, there's casting out of demons, miracles happening, thousands of people coming to Christ. That stuff doesn't happen in normal reality. So clearly, this is just, he's from a distance, he's writing this, this, this story about things that general, generalities, that he picked out some historical features and then embellished. He said, and here's how we'll prove it. Wait, if you go to some of the different words that he uses, like when he comes to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, he actually calls the city leaders polytarchs. If you know anything about Greek, you know that, that that just sounds like a made-up word. It's like someone who really didn't know the proper name of the government official. So he just said, uh, you know, he's like poly, like a city, tark, like a ruler. Uh, he's a polytarch. Yeah, these guys were polytarchs and they did this thing. No one had ever seen the word polytarch in all of ancient literature. And then here Luke just makes this word up to describe the, the rulers in Thessalonica. Like this is proof that he's just making this stuff up. And then in 1835, archaeologists found this in ancient Thessalonica. It's a second century inscription that lists the six polytarchs of the city of Thessalonica. See, polytarch is a word that was only used in Thessalonica. Only someone with first-hand experience would know that there were polytarchs there. I mean, this is like if someone from a distance tried to write about Phoenixville and, and describe the, the city council meeting. You'd be like, well, that's great, but it's actually a borough council meeting, right? You'd have to have first-hand experience to know this. But, but Luke, he was there. He knows. Those are polytarchs. So the whole rest of the world has never heard of these. But Luke has because he was there. There's a second guy that they pick up along the way uh, in this region, actually. Actually, way, way back here. Lystra. They pick up a second guy. So, so it's Paul, Silas, and he's building this team. He brings in Luke, and then there's one other guy, a guy named Timothy. You've probably heard of him. Paul writes a couple books to him later on. Now, Timothy, he's an interesting guy. He's, he's a young guy, up and coming, and he's so passionate, so on fire, so convicted, so fully devoted that the Apostle Paul meets him and hears about his reputation, says, we have to bring this guy along. But here's the deal. Timothy came from a... a his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. So Paul says, I've got good news and bad news, Timothy. The good news is that I am inviting you to the most epic missionary adventure in the history of humanity. You are going to see God work in ways that no one thought imaginable. Here's the bad news. A big part of our ministry is to Jews which means a Greek boy like you has to have a little surgery before he comes along. Do you want to come? Yes. Timothy would have to make the decision, will I be circumcised as a grown man in order to join this journey? If that is not devotion, I do not know what is. <laughs> but enough of that. So they pick up Timothy, and then they move on, and then here's the next thing. He's got this elite missionary team. They're getting ready to embark on the world. They don't know what the next step is. So what do they do? They say, ah, to the south, 
To the south there is this region called Asia. Not the same as the entire continent, but Asia. We're going to go to Asia. And there in Asia, it's strategic. There's Ephesus and stuff in Asia. This huge population. It's strategic. It makes sense. There's a lot of Jews there. We can break in with the gospel there. That is where we're going to go. But it says in the text in chapter 16, verse 6, but they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. It didn't work. The door was slammed in their face. So they said, okay, we've got this elite team. We're sent by God. We're going to do it. So they, they said, let's head to the north. There's an area called Bithynia. So they said, we're going to go up north, and then that's where God's going to work us. That's where we're going to lead. And you know what it says? It says, but, verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Another door is slammed in their face. Well, we can't go south and we can't go north. If we, if we go, if we go, we can either go back home to the east or we can go west. And I guess we're going west. And it says in verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8, so they went west to Troas. I love this part of the scriptures. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you should earmark chapter 16. For everyone out there who's thought, I want to follow God. I want to follow his mission. Yet everywhere I go, the door slams in my face. The Apostle Paul felt that too. They had no clue where they were going. They had no clue. There was no strategic plan. There was no big decision. There was no overarching master plan or philosophy. They were going to knock on every door until God opened one. And we see in chapter 16, verse 9, God finally does. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Finally, God opens the door. He calls them. He speaks to them. Now, what is God going to do with this elite team of missionaries? Chapter 16 says, from Troas we put out to sea, and from there we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. If you read the rest of the chapter, you discover that God's exciting plan for this elite team of missionaries is to lead a women's devotional. And they get thrown in jail. You see, God's ways are not our ways. The Apostle Paul in the ancient world would never have thought, Oh, this is my plan. I'm going to go lead a women's devotional and that's going to change the world. But what does God do? He leads him to a riverside where there's no men to lead a women's devotional. And those women will become devoted followers of Jesus Christ that will form the church of Philippi. He'll get thrown in jail. And then the jailer and his entire family will come to know the Lord. We move on from there. And after that, the Apostle Paul can no longer stay in Philippi. He has to move on. And we see, if you go back to the map here, we see that somewhere. He goes from Philippi. And this is where he's going to, he passes through these towns. And then he's going to end up in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. 
And he says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. This is good news. Okay, up to this point, the reason he just met with some women in Philippi is because there were not enough men in that community, Jewish men in that community to form a synagogue. According to Jewish oral law, you needed 10 Jewish men in this town in order to have a proper synagogue. They didn't even have that. There were no Jewish men. There were no God-fearing men in the entire area. But Thessalonica is big enough that, thanks be to God, there are some Jewish men. There is a synagogue. So he shows up there, and then we read, as was his custom... He went into the synagogue. So when, when a city did have a synagogue, what's he do? The first thing he does is the way he's going to break into that community is he's going to go to those who he has a common basis. People who believe the scriptures. That if he can start there, he can work out and he can reach the whole community. So he goes to the synagogue. And what does he do? On three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving That the Messiah had to suffer. They already believed in the Messiah, but now he's going to prove from Scripture he had to suffer. And he had to rise from the dead. And then after he's proved that, he says, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you, he is the Messiah. These were people who accepted the Old Testament. They knew that God had promised a king in the line of David would come. They knew that a king, in Hebrew, Mashiach, or Messiah, we call him. In Greek, Christos, or Christ, was, would come. That he, would, he was coming to right what was wrong, to establish a new way of life, a new kingdom on earth. That he would set captives free, that he would rule in justice and righteousness. These people expected this, they knew this. So what does he do? He takes their Bible that they read. He says, hey, let's look at Isaiah chapter 53 right here. It says... The Messiah, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. It says, verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you see, this is the Messiah. He must suffer. He must die. But turn over to, turn over to Psalm 16. What does God say? What does God promise to the Messiah, the son of David? It promises, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. That the Messiah would not see decay. That he would die truly, but he would rise truly. That he would have to rise to show that he conquered death and sin. That he would have to conquer to show that God approved of him. That he would have to rise again to show that he is the one, the true king. And the Apostle Paul would say, you've been waiting your whole life for the promised Messiah. The one who had to suffer and die. The one who had to rise from the dead. He's Jesus. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. God's building his church through powerful women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. If you don't like my sermon today, please don't do that. They rushed to Jason's house, that's where they were staying, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, the Polytarchs. 
shouting, These men who have caused these uh, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. That night, the Apostle Paul and his team, they have to sneak out under cover of night. Five weeks is over. That's it. That's the five weeks. That's all we have. Two things. Two things I want us to just reflect on as we get ready to prepare our hearts to do this case study through the book of 1 Thessalonians about what God did in that time and and the reverberations of what that five weeks would have not only in them but all over the world and even in our time and our lives today. The first thing I want you to see in this story is that there is nothing super spiritual about it. Throughout the book of Acts, you you find amazing spiritual acts. But here you find no miracles, no demons, no speaking in tongues of angels, no prayer meetings where the room gets shaken, no fasting, no prophetic word, no famous sinners being radically converted. In fact, there is nothing particularly unusual or fantastic about what this elite team of missionaries did. They showed up. They shared the gospel. And then when they thought they were going to get a beating, they ran away. I don't know about you, but I am so encouraged by this. I mean, if the qualifications of leading a spiritual movement are that I have to cast out demons and heal the sick and make people rise from the dead and speak in tongues and, and, and save famous sinners, like, I just, I'm in trouble. But if the qualifications of what God needs to see his spirit take over a community are that I would show up and I would boldly speak his gospel. That's something I can do. If we will offer ourselves to him and have the courage to share the gospel, the results are not in our hands. The power is not in us. You see, this whole thing is that the Apostle Paul actually believed and will show that it's true across time that the gospel is the power of God to transform our lives and our world. That it's the gospel. This message changes everything. That it's Jesus' work that changes us, not our own. That it's the Spirit at work that moves, not us. Not us. The second thing I want to point out as we close here is that I want you to look at how the apostle shares the gospel. If we go back one in verses 2 and 3, we're going to see this. It says that he went into the synagogue on three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, that he let the word of God speak, and he explained and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise. Now, this sounds a little bit different than the way you or I would usually share the gospel. If you ask someone, an evangelical Christian, what is the gospel? The first thing they'll usually say, and it's good. Jesus died for your sins. It's true. true. 
another thing they might say is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, sin his only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Absolutely true. Both of those statements are true and helpful. But I want you to notice here, there's something different about the way Paul presents the gospel that is going to have a radical shift in how they live their lives that is going to make a big splash in that community. If he had just showed up and said, you know, Jesus died for your sins, I don't think he would have been threatened. I don't think a mob would have formed. But he says Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And his detractors, they get this. They, he, the king came. He died for you and he rose from the dead and he is victorious. And I tell you what, for all who believe, he rescued us from the wrath to come. But he is king and he is coming back. And he will establish his kingdom in a way that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I know out there in the world, Caesar makes everyone acknowledge Caesar is Lord. That's the statement, right? If you do not acknowledge that, you will be killed, hacked down. But I tell you, Jesus is Lord. Are you going to fear Caesar? Or are you going to fear Jesus? Are you going to swear allegiance to Caesar? Are you going to swear allegiance to Jesus? What's your life about? Where's your allegiance? Are you going to bend a knee? I tell you, the detractors, they got this. When you go to the next passage, what do they say? Their big accusation is they've caused trouble all over the world. Why? Because they're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king. And that's exactly right. They got it. That's, that's the gospel Paul's proclaiming. This gospel has some unavoidable implications. If Jesus is king, then he deserves our radical obedience. That's what the Apostle Paul modeled, and that's what the Thessalonians modeled following the Apostle Paul and the Lord himself. That whatever you think of Jesus, that he's your buddy, or he's your best friend, or, or he lives in your heart, or he loves little children, all of those things might be true, and I hope they are. But Jesus is king. To believe that Jesus, the king, died for you, rose from the dead, rescued you from your sin, and is coming back any day to judge the world... To believe that and then live a life that completely ignores him. Live a life that completely acts as though it makes no difference in your daily life. That makes no sense. And the Thessalonians knew this. And it sent reverberations throughout the world. To believe that Jesus is king and that he might come back any day demands radical urgency. And the Thessalonians lived this. They believed that the same Jesus who came meek and mild, who suffered and died, would come back like a thief in the night. That the sky would be rolled back like a scroll. That heaven itself would be opened up. And that on a white horse he would tear into our world, establishing his kingdom. And that in language that we can't even fathom, John the Revelator describes it this way. With justice he judges and makes war 
on sin, on evil, on death, on all the things that we hate in ourselves in this world. He's going to destroy it. That his eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. That he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs is the name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That when this day comes, the Apostle Paul pleads with the Thessalonians and the Philippians and the the Corinthians all along this journey. He pleads that at that name, every knee will bow, even Caesar. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether they believed it in life or not, whether they swore allegiance in life or not. And this, my friends, demands a radical urgency. And that simple gospel that the king has come, he demands your obedience. It demands urgency. He demands worship because he has rescued us from the wrath to come. We drop in five weeks into a town of Thessalonica and send ripples across all of Macedonia and Achaia, and everywhere. Church, may we learn from them.